The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We're joined by Wayne Jobson, often called Native Wayne. He's a record producer, songwriter, a broadcast personality. He's worked with everyone from the band No Doubt, the late Gregory Isaacs, Toots and the Maytals, Jimmy Buffett. Willie Nelson, Paris Hilton, we could just keep on going. But, Wayne, thank you very much for joining us. Well, I'm honored, man, honored to be, be talking to you. Yeah, I've been, I've been very blessed in my life to work with some of the greats, you know. <laughs> well, we're blessed to have you with us. I think most stories are best from the beginning. If you could paint a picture of what your early years were like. Yeah, man, so I, w- I was really lucky. I grew up up in the hills of Jamaica in a place called Sintan, just a few miles from a place called Nine Mile, which is a kind of sacred place because that's where Bob Marley was born and that's where he's laid to rest. And the Bob Marley mausoleum is up there. And of course, thousands of people from around the world go up there every day to visit Bob and get his spirit. And it's kind of in the magical, mystical mountains of St. Anne. And so I was really lucky growing up there. And my um, parents were actually friends with Bob's mom, Mrs. Siddhartha Booker. And was such a great lady. She passed a few years ago and she actually recorded one of my songs that I wrote about Bob. And when I played it for her, she said it was the best song ever written about Bob. So she, she recorded it and, it and I was really honored to, to, to work with her, you know. But growing up in the hills there, it was just so, so much magic. And of course, it was early days, right, when Jamaica just got independence from England. And so we, had, we could hear all the English music on the radio. We could hear all of the American music. And also the Jamaican music, which was early Bob Marley, Toots and the Metal. So I was lucky enough to be able to hear all three kinds of music. Because if somebody was in England, they were only hearing English music. In America, they were only hearing American. And if you were in, you know, but because I was in Jamaica, I was able to hear all the things. So he's got to get influenced by the early people. And all that great early music, you know, of course, you know, my life changed when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, like everybody else in the world. And, and that just kind of opened up a whole vortex of music for me and, also, I was really lucky that my cousin, uh, Dickie Jobson, started Island Records with Chris Blackwell. So I grew up around the whole Island family, you know, going to the studio with Cat Stevens and just learning, and of course, going to the studio with Bob Marley and just watching and learning uh, the great songwriters and the greats, how they all did it, you know. So Jamaica was a kind of very, you know, from back then, it was a very spiritual place because like just up the road from me, you know, Keith Richards lives from the Stones. And so, you know, I did that album together with him and my brother called The Wingless Angels which was the kind of a Rasta chant Naya Bingi album, which actually got nominated for Grammy. And um, it was, you know, it was just, just such an honor working with Keith and knowing him from back then. So basically growing up, you know, up the road is Bob Marley's place, down the road is Keith Richards. And like also a regular visitor at the time used to be Paul McCartney. So basically I had a Beatle, a Stone and a, and a Marley, you know, within circumference close by and so you could you know um just get influences from all of them and just get together too so i could put my music together and put together the sound that eventually became native which was my band that did a few albums you know with universal and a&m and herbal put and a lot of people like that so i was just very blessed growing up around all that great music you know just an incredible foundation wow what has always been the purpose of the art that you create well, as I said, blessed enough to grow up around, uh, listen to Mali and Keith Richards and them. These guys were not just um, the thing with, with the whalers. And, and I, I, people always just say Bob Marley, but it's not just Bob Marley. You have to understand it's Peter Tosh and Bonnie Whaler who were equally as great as Bob at that time. And when I first met them and my cousin Dickie Jobs was managing them and they were just working, they were doing Catch a Fire and working on the Burning album. These guys were not musicians saying, hey, let's make some money and let's get some girls and all that. These guys were evangelists. They were like on a mission from God and failure was not an option. And the reason why Marley became the biggest star in the world was because failure was not an option. He was not doing it for the fun of it. It was a spiritual quest, you know. It was a mission that he was on. And all of them, Peter Tosh too, absolute genius, Peter Tosh. And I actually went on, which we can talk about later, I went on to do the documentary on Peter Tosh's life, which is called Red X. And you can watch it on YouTube. If you just go to Peter Tosh Red X on YouTube, you can see it and his whole life story and about the murder and I interviewed the guys who, the guy who murdered him and all the survivors of the murder and all that. So that got nominated for Academy Award in Canada. So I was really blessed to have done that great Peter Tosh project. And um, what happens when Peter passed, his 
went to his wife and, and she gave me all of the videos and tips and everything and said, you know, I told her I was going to make a, a documentary on Peter. And she said, but, you know, you wouldn't be interested in these tips because it's just Peter talking. But when I listened to the tips, he had sat down the year before he died and taped his whole life onto a tape recorder, intending to use that to write a book. When he passed, now we had Peter telling his whole story. So Red X, the movie, is Peter narrating his entire life story, and I just recreated the images that he spoke about. So it's the only time a musician has really died and left his whole life story to be made into a film. So I think that's why it got the Academy Award nomination in Canada. But coming back to Bob and Peter and Bonnie, they were just like so, so spiritual. And so I kind of learned from them, going and jamming with them at 56 Hope Road, which is now the Bob Marley Museum, that, you know, music was not about, it's not about entertainment. You know, it's basically, you're here to uplift the spirit of the people and like explore the depth of the mind. And that's how Marley was able to change the world, you know, even for places that didn't understand his lyrics. There's a lot of countries where they don't understand Bob's lyrics and he's still the biggest star there. So we know what a genius he was with his lyrics. Imagine if you don't even understand the lyrics. It's just that the music has spiritual frequency to it. And a lot of reggae has such a spiritual frequency to it that it taps into people. And I always say, kind of as a joke, you know, the reggae guitar goes like chakra, chakra. It's the sound of the guitar and it opens up <laughs> your chakras and opens up your vortexes and, and, and just makes people spiritual. And that's why Bob is kind of revered around the world. And when I tell kids that I knew him and hung out with him, it was like saying, oh, my God, you met Gandhi, you know, you met Martin Luther King, you know, you met Jesus. It's like people have that kind of reverence around him, you know. And when I used to go and visit his mom, um, Sidella, who used to live up at Nine Mile, which is where Bob is later rest, all these people from around the world would come up to, to her and bow down before her and say, bless me, oh, mother, bless me. And she would bless them. Like she is like, she had become like the Virgin Mary. You know what I mean? Because of the holiness of Bob. But nobody around the world goes to John Lennon's mom or Bono's mom and says, bless me, oh, mom. You know? So Bob has created a reverence around him, like a kind of a Gandhi sort of figure. That is, you know, beyond any other musician. And by doing this, it was because he was using his art, you know, to uplift the spirit and explore the depth of the mind and not just for fun and entertainment. Well, on the note of Bob Marley, you mentioned this song a few minutes ago that you wrote about him that I'm hoping you can tell us what the song was called and what exa what exactly inspired it. Yeah, I was just, um, you know, having been around him all those years and then watching him turn into one of the biggest stars in the world. He actually became bigger after he passed. But to watch him and going, lucky enough to go and jam with him and listen to him rehearse and go to the studio with him and all that. I was reading, uh, they had a book of quotes from Bob. And one of the quotes was, I was born with a price on my head. So I wrote a song called, I was born with a price on my head, but I'll still be here long after the rivers run red. You know, long after the revolution and everything. So... Yeah, that's what the song is about. It's called Rivers Run Red, and Bob Marley's uh, mom recorded it, and, and I'll send it to you so you can you can hear it and, and play it. And she was an amazing voice. She had that kind of a Mahalia Jackson kind of a haunting gospel kind of voice. You know, you can see where Bob got his talent from. Wow, Wayne, who taught you the most about music? Well, starting from the early days, um, you know, doing all the high school bands and all that. But basically, it was. I think my main influence came from going to 56 Hope Road, now the Marley Museum, and just jamming with Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, a lot with Peter Tosh, and just learning from them, you know, the whole vibe and what, what, what lyrics was about and what chords was about. And also my mentor was Joe Higgs, who taught the whalers to sing and basically taught all of the Jamaican singers how to sing. Joe was like the godfather of Jamaican music, and he has some great albums. You should check out Joe Higgs' stuff. And um, there's that one album that I put together with him before he passed, and it was a, a brought in the Hot House Flowers, a great Irish band. And we kind of combined Ireland and Irie, which is the word for Jamaica and, you know, green. And, and, and did this great project with Joe and the Hot House Flowers together playing reggae. And it was, it was absolute magic. You can check out Joe Higgs. It's, um, it's called Godfather of Reggae. You know, it's on iTunes and all that. And Joe basically just, you know, taught me how to write and sing and harmony and all that. Because he had taught, you know, Bob Marley, Peter Tush and Bonnie Whale and all of them how to sing. And... If you watch the Bob Marley documentary, which is absolutely brilliant, done by Kevin MacDonald, it's just called Marley. It's like two and a half hours long, and I helped Kevin do some of the interviews for it. And now I'm helping Kevin develop a, a Peter Tosh feature, which is going to be called Legalize It. But in the Marley documentary, which Bonnie Whaler is in, and Bonnie is, of course, absolute genius. For those of you who don't know Bonnie Whaler, go and get his album called Black Heart Man. And I tell everybody that that's the greatest reggae album of all time. Better, equal or better to any Marley album. It's just absolute genius. And, and Bonnie said that when Joe Higgs was 
teaching them to sing, you know, sometimes they would sing off key because they were just kids and they were just learning. So what Joe would do, he would take them into the cemetery in the, between the graves and let them sing between the graves. And they were so nervous that they would sing on key, you know, because they, they don't want to make a mistake because the ghosts are there. You know? so that's how brilliant Joe was to think of forcing people to sing good by taking them into the graveyard. And um, yeah, so, so Joe taught me a lot. So I was really lucky to, you know, have Joe and he was actually living at 56 Hope Road. And, and um, when the whalers first got there and they were rehearsing, so every day, you know, we'd go there and go to the rehearsal with Bob and Peter and Family Man. And then the night, Joe and I would go down to Trenchtown and he would just teach me songs and chords and all that sort of thing. So very, very lucky to um, to do that. And then, of course, one of my big strokes of luck came when I met Lee Perry, you know, who was a great Jamaican producer, Scratch. And of course, I was just a little kid, you know, with a guitar and a few songs and um, Boris Garden, actually, the great Jamaican singer and bass player, took me down to Scratch. And, you know, at the end of the session, when I got to the session, Scratch was producing Robert Palmer, who is a great, you know, British singer addicted to love. And, and at the end of the session, you know, I just said to Scratch, you know, who had just finished recording Paul McCartney and Robert Palmer, and of course, all the Bob Marley stuff. And I said to him, I have some songs. And I thought he was going to go, like you and everybody else, get out right now. You know what I mean? But he was so cool. He was just like, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, you're an Arawak Indian, which is the early American or early Jamaican Indians. And he said, um, he said, you're an uh, Arawak Indian and I want to work with you. So I just played in the songs and he said, okay, come on. We went in and did this incredible recording session at the Black Hawk. And it's just, it's just been re-released. It's called Lee Scratch Perry Presents Native at the Black Hawk. It's available on iTunes and everything. And it was just, I was so honored that, you know, to get to work with him. And it's not like, you know, I was a little kid, so not like I had any money or anything. So he just basically charged me nothing, just a little bit for the studio time and just produced the, the, the whole album for me. And I was also blessed because I had Joe Higgs as the band leader. So I brought in Joe and Joe played percussion and structured the songs and did everything for us. So my first session in the studio is two of the all-time greats, Joe Higgs and Lee Scratch Perry producing and Joe band is band leader. So that thing came out really great. And 40 years later, we just released it on the 40th anniversary. It's just, um, everybody loves it and it's been getting amazing reviews and all that because it had those two greats working on it. Because you have to understand, I was still a kid, you know, and I was not that good yet you know i mean you have to it takes years to become good you know but i was just so lucky that my first session i just had these two greats and it ended up so and so amazing and i went to england and got you know went to england actually met johnny rotten from sex pistols and the pistols were like god in england at the time and rotten just said this is the best thing i've heard and rotten went to the press and said the next big thing is going to be wayne jobson and so all the record companies called me up and offered me deals and i eventually signed with clive davis um, Arista Records and came back to Jamaica and set up Native and that's when Native was kind of like the one of the big kind of rock reggae bands in Jamaica. We were the first bands to experiment with rock and reggae, you know. And now all these bands, forty years later, sound just like us, and all of them are huge, like Revolution and Soja and Tribal Seeds. All those bands that was the kind of initial sound that Native helped to kind of start, you know. Because at that time, the only other person who was doing it was maybe Inner Circle had a little bit of rock in their stuff, and Bob Marley had a little bit of rock in his stuff too. But actually, we recorded some of our stuff at 56 Hope Road, Bob Marley's studio, you know. And I remember Bob didn't want to encroach on the studio, so he just came and he stood up at the door and he just listened to us recording. And then when I was walking through the door, he turned to his friend and Bob said, I wonder if these guys have that sound, you know, the sound that was going to take reggae to the next level, the kind of rock reggae sound. And that, that was, um, I was really, you know, honored that he listened to it and actually liked it. And so I remember a funny story was the same day I had on red, green and gold shoes. And when I was walking by, Bob stopped me and said, Jobson, why are you walking in Africa? You can't wear red, green, and gold shoes. That's walking in Africa. Take off shoes. <laughs> so that was pretty cool, yeah. And um, yeah, so, so we, we kind of created that rock reggae sound. But it was all came started, like you can say, starting from scratch. Well, it started from scratch from Lee Perry, who was a great one to just help me start my whole career, get the deal with Arista. And actually, when I went back to Jamaica with a whole bunch of money to now pay scratch to do the whole session, he, by now, he had kind of lost his mind. And he was just painting the whole studio. He painted all the master tapes and painted the board. And he was just basically lost his mind. You know, spend one day, I would come and he would paint the whole place red. Then I got back there a week later. I said, Scratch, you know, I have all this money for you. And Arista are waiting for the album. And he's like, well, um, no, no, no. Red is evil. I have to repaint the whole place green. And then he repaints the whole place green. And it takes another few weeks. And he just kept on and on until he just went crazy and just 
burnt down the whole studio, you know? Mm. So, I mean, I think it's the only time somebody has burnt down their own studio. And so I was not able to actually do the final album with Lee Perry. I had to produce the album myself because he had burnt down the Black Ark. So what happened was that I just re-released the actual um, demo. It was kind of a demo album that I had done with him, but it was good enough to get the record deal and everybody still loves it, you know, because it had Joe Higgs and him on it. Did you have much interaction with Clive Davis? Not really. I mean, I was signed to the British version of of um thing, and I've seen Clive since then, and he's been friendly and all that. But back then, I think he was just you know he was just a strictly hit man. He didn't understand what it was like to to take a band and develop them, and you know, and and it takes years to build it. He was just into like Whitney Houston top forty hits, and so when he heard it, he uh, didn't even release it in America. So we did it for Arista Worldwide, and then we ended up getting a deal with RCA in America, who understood what it was about, and RCA then signed us to thing. But Clive was just a you know a, a hitman, and you have to say he's one of the best record men of all time because he's had so many hits, but you have to understand the greatest record man of all time, bar none, is my friend Chris Blackwell, who of course did all of Marley and U2 and the whole entire Island Records thing, which is like Grace Jones and Steve Winwood and Traffic and, you know, Roxy Music and Jethro Tull. I mean, there's so much great music has come out of Ireland and Chris, and I'm just proud that a Jamaican that my friend, you know, created the, the legacy of the greatest record company of all time. The only other person who you could argue maybe is the greatest record man, along with Chris, is Barry Gordy, who was absolutely a genius. But remember, Barry was just doing um, R&B and some, you know, a little bit of, of um, pop, but mostly Blackwell had hip-hop, pop, rock, reggae, everything. As, as far as an all-rounder, Blackwell is the greatest record man. That's an all-rounder, I'd say. What is Chris Blackwell like at heart? I mean, as an absolute genius. I mean, nobody can touch him as far as knowing, you know, to develop bands. And Chris always told me that he would find a band and he would just keep them going as long as it took for them to get their own. In those days, it was records, albums. And, and if you if you were a letter like if the band was called Peter, it would be on the P's in the record store. But if you became a little bit bigger, they gave you your own little section, you know, with your name on it, Mark, Peter Tosh, and then your records would be in there. So Chris said he just kept the bands going long enough until the record stores would put their own section. And once he knew that he had a section, he knew there was something there. And he would take, you know, four, three, four, five albums to develop an artist. Nowadays, if a single is not a hit, you get dropped right away, you know? So it, it was doing that. And Chris was just like this brilliant mind who, I mean, I can tell you one story that I tell people that, that, that is unbelievable, that Chris is the only man on earth who would do this. Where, when Peter Tosh, Peter Tosh didn't understand business, so he basically left Island Records and left um, Bob Marley because he didn't understand that when you tour, they charge everything against you. You know, that's how it works. And like when you go on tour, if the tour costs $50,000, a record company lends you $50,000 because you are your own boss. You know, so when you have a band, mm. you're not working for somebody, you're your boss. So they lend you the money, you go on tour, you know, you build a following, and then they take back that money out of your record sales. Peter didn't understand this. And he was saying, well, you know, Chris Blackwell took the money out for the tour. And so I'm not, I tour, I'm supposed to be making money, not spending money. So he just was not a businessman, you know. But Bob understood, and Bob was like, yeah, thanks for that 50000 Now give me another 100000 so I can tour. You know what I mean? And Bob understood that he would make millions and pay back the money, and that was chicken, you know, that was small time. For... So Peter left, and when Peter left, though, and he kind of said some you know, unsavory things about Chris Blackwell, and so anybody else in the world would have gone like, okay, I'm going to sabotage um, Peter's career, or I'm just going to do everything not to help him, you know? So at the time, Peter was then going to sign with a small label. And when Chris heard, Chris was like, no, I'm not going to let Chris, Peter is brilliant. I'm not going to let him sign with a small label. Chris contacted his friend, Gary Kerr first, who was managing Talking Heads and Blondie and said, Gary, I want you to manage Peter Tosh. I want you to get him a record deal with Columbia, the biggest record company in the world at the time. Gary managed him, got Peter a deal. And so now Peter is with Columbia, which is way bigger than Island Records, which has millions of dollars for promotion. So basically, Peter Tosh is going to use Columbia's money and become bigger than Bob Marley. And it's going to kill Island Records and kill Bob Marley. You understand? Hmm. It's all yeah. about the money spent on promotion. But Chris did look at it like that. Chris was like, all boats rise with the tide. So if Columbia spend this money on Peter Tosh and break reggae big, it's going to pull Marley and Island Records up. You know what I mean? Hmm. So no other person would have done that because everybody would have said, no, you know, Peter Tosh slagged me in the press and all the time. I'm just going to sabotage his career. Chris helped him because he knew it would help everybody and, and lift reggae. So that's like the genius of Chris Blackwell that no, no other record person on earth would have done, you know? So just, and and for him to, um, another great story, I was just with him in Jamaica a few days ago, and 
he was telling me that the song My Boy Lollipop, which was the first big ska hit, and knocked the Beatles off the charts. So I said to him, you know, how could you find this song? And how could, I mean, it's just insane. So what he did was he had released a song, I think by Jackie Edwards, and Billy Small had sung one verse at the very end of it. And every time he played it, people loved her voice. So he's in England, and he says, people love this girl's voice. He writes a letter to her mom in Jamaica, way up in the hills of Jamaica, and said, I want to bring your daughter to England. Now, who else on earth is going to bring an unknown girl from Jamaica to, because she has a good one good verse and one song and bring her to England and make her into a star? Nobody would have done that. So Chris brings Millie to England and looking through some old tapes that he had, and he found this song called My Boy Lollipop, which had been a flop. And he said, well, maybe this can work. So he brings in Ernie Wrangling, the genius guitarist, the greatest guitarist of all time, who is my neighbor in Jamaica as well, too, and I did a whole project with him on his life a DVD and album about Ernest Wrangling. You can just Google Ernest Wrangling. And um, Ernest just went in, recorded this obscure song by an obscure artist that nobody has ever heard of, Millie Small. Bam, 8 million copies, number one song around the world, knocks the Beatles off the charts. To discover that, that makes you the greatest record man of all. Because, of course, when Bob, when Chris took over Bob Marley, he was already a known star. So that was a mark of genius to make him into this massive star. But it was still... You know, Bob was already a genius. So come on, I mean, somebody else could have discovered Bob. When he found U2, they were unknown, and actually every other record company in England had turned him down. But he saw something special in them. But still, you know, Bono is, is a genius, so it's not that hard to discover Bono. But for you to take an unknown girl from the hills of Jamaica who's never even been on a plane and never been on a boat and, and has just total real country bumpkin and bring her to England and knock the Beatles off the charts is absolute genius. And that's why I tell everybody Chris is a genius. Hmm. Wow, what a story. Great. Is it true that you worked with Lou Adler? Yeah, I was very, very, very blessed as well. Too. We, um, we had a mutual friend, an actress called Radon Chung. Her father is Tommy Chung, who is also my friend, you know, the great comedian and, and um, kind of champion of Herb. And he has his own Herb now called Chung's Choice. And um, so, you know, Radon introduced us to Lou and he just liked the vibe that we had. And so we did a whole album with him, with, a, um, and with, with Herb Alford. So it was really lucky because Lou had his own label at um, at A&M. And so Lou brought us in. We did a whole album. Um, it's called No Boundaries, Native. And Herb Alpert played trumpet on it with us. And he's in the video with us and all that thing. So we're really lucky that Lou really helped us a lot and recorded this great album in L.A. with him. And it was really cool because what happened is that a lot of people didn't know, but the great Sam Cooke song called Wonderful World, Don't Know Much About History, is was written by... Sam Cooke, Lou Adler, and Herb Alpert. So we said, well, great, if these two guys wrote this song along with Sam Cooke, let's record it because it's their song and, you know, Lou is a producer and Herb is the owner of the record company. So obviously, you know, so we recorded it and it, it, it did well and everything was great. But it was so great working with Lou, who, of course, changed the whole world of music with, with Mamas and Papas, you know, California Dreaming and Monday, Monday and, and the great Carol King album, Tapestry, and of course the stuff that he did in film with the Rocky Horror Picture Show and all the Cheech and Chong films and all that. So Lou Adler is another one of those genius producers, you know, and I still see him in LA a lot and he's still keeping as strong as ever and still as brilliant as ever. Anyone who hears you talk, it's very obvious that you're a man who loves records. So what would you say are the records, the recordings that have influenced you the most? After seeing after seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and then getting Meet the Beatles on all those early albums, of course it, that has to be the stuff with with Revolver and Rubber Soul and eventually coming up to Sgt. Pepper's. But then the early Marley stuff, of course, was was so brilliant, which was actually the Whalers. It wasn't just um, Bob Marley, which was songs like Trenchtown Rock and Screwface Noah, Who for Frighten. All all of the early Bob Marley stuff was just so brilliant. And I was like, remember as a little kid, just seeing there was a TV show in Jamaica which nobody can track down which was Bob up at Nine Mile where he goes up with a donkey and he's walking and Rita Marley's on the back of the donkey and Bob is pulling the donkey and it kind of had that kind of Jesus configurations with, it, with, with when Jesus was on the donkey and and just seeing Bob up there and, and, and listening to all of his early work and just thinking, this guy is the ultimate genius. You know? So my biggest influence at that time, was I was just a little kid, was just watching Bob and hearing all the early stuff. This is long before Island Records and Chris Blackwell. So I was always a huge fan of Bob and then 
so Bob's early stuff and I'd say the, the you know the Beatles stuff is what really hurt me. And then early Dylan listening to you know um, freewheeling Bob Dylan and stuff like that was just like as far as a lyricist, I don't think anybody can touch Dylan, you know. But watching Bob from those days and just, you know, seeing him progress over the years. And then um, one day my cousin, uh, Dickie Jobson, who started Island, came to me and said, we just signed Bob Marley and um, I want you to come and hear what we're working on. And he put on Concrete Jungle for me. This is long before it came out. And when I heard the opening of Concrete Jungle with a guitar, my life changed from black and white to Technicolor. Then immediately I knew, well, this is the guy who has been my idol all these years. I know that he sounds like this. I know that he has this rock guitar in his music. This guy is going to become the biggest star in the world. So I was so happy that, you know, that, 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 that opening of Catch a Fire is what really changed my life as far as music. We're talking with native Wayne Jobson, musician and also radio personality. How did you get interested in the radio? Yeah, I mean, I always listened to Jamaica. I had some great radio stations and... Also, we could we were able to pick up the BBC some of the time. So, the good thing was that that, that um, Jamaica radio played everything. There was no, it wasn't segregated like in America where you have a rock radio and R and B radio and you know country radio. They played everything in Jamaica, so I got to hear everything. So I loved it and listened. The BBC would also play everything. There was no discrimination as far as the music. So I was always interested in radio. And then I was in Los Angeles and I met Mark Goodman, who was the first VJ ever on MTV. And Mark still has a show on Sirius XM. And I met Mark and Mark said, listen, I'm here at K-Rock and, and we have a reggae show and, and the guy is not doing a good job. You want to do a reggae show on K-Rock? And I went in and they were just like, okay, start tomorrow. And I was like, well, Ab, you know, you're the number one station in America, number one modern rock station in the world and i've never done radio but you're just going to give me a show and i'm just going to start so i just came in at the deep end and just had to like learn in one week how to do radio and how to do everything and after a few weeks i got the hang of it and everybody loved it and then my show ended up becoming huge and it was like the biggest one of the biggest reggae shows in america because i was on you know the, the number one billing station in america which was k-rock and the number one modern rock station and so I was really lucky to be at that station because that was the time in the early 90s when k-rock and we broke Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Chili Peppers, Smashing Pumpkins, all of those bands. And at the same time, I was the first one to play Sublime, which was Brad Noel, the genius. And of course, you know, No Doubt and Gwen Stefani. And so I became friends with all of these bands like Three Live and Sugar Ray and I ended up working with all of them. And so after I'd helped to break them and then the um, Tragic Kingdom album with No Doubt sold like 15 million copies and all that, they said, well, I want to go more into reggae. Can you take us to Jamaica? So that was when I took, you know, Tony and Gwen Stefani and um, the whole crew, Tom and Adrian, to Jamaica. And we recorded the Rocksteady album down at G-Jam, which is a great studio down in Port Antonio, Jamaica. A really beautiful place. If you go to Jamaica, make sure you check out Port Antonio. And, um, yes, yeah, so, so I was lucky enough to meet the bands and end up, you know, Sugar Ray recorded one of my songs. I sang on a few 311 records. And um, I produced some tracks with the Long Beach Double Stars, which was Brad right after no doubt, sorry, which was sublime after Brad Noel died and they continued as Long Beach Double Stars, so I did some stuff with them. But I think the you know the, the absolute genius of rock American rock reggae was Brad Noel. Nobody was writing that quality of song and you know, just like really great live and all that. I was lucky to know Brad and hang out with him and before he passed, which was really sad. But he set up a legacy. And to this day, Still, the biggest band on K-Rock in L.A. is not U2 or the Chili Peppers. The biggest band on K-Rock is Sublime. So that just shows that, you know, 20 years later, Brad's legacy is still keeping on, you know? So so I, I was able to, to, to do that on radio and break those bands. And then, after doing that for many years, then um, Lee Abrams, who's like the godfather of modern, of rock radio in America, FM radio, Lee called me and said, hey, you know, I heard this stuff and I want you to come and build a station for me at Sirius XM called The Joint. So I went to D.C. for three years, and at that time it was just XM, it was before they merged with Sirius, and I built the first 24-7 reggae station in America and put all the great music into it, all of the Black Uhuru and Peter Tosh and Burning Spear music and, of course, Mali. And then I was really blessed to, 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 to you know, because we had a $2 billion budget, so, of course, it's not like you have to, like, save, like, on some radio time, it's, it's a very small time, you know? So I got the best of everything, built this incredible station called The Joint, which you can still listen to on Sirius XM, it's number 42. And then when we eventually decided to launch the station, because XM in DC launched a year before Sirius in New York. And when we launched, I convinced them that when we switch on the power of this $2 billion empire, the first song that has to play is Bob Marley's One Love for the world to hear. And they agreed. And so when it turned on the power, $2 billion, 
One Love came on and I knew Bob was in Zion just smiling and saying, hey man, thanks for helping me launch the biggest radio thing in history. You know? So that was really cool. And I did the, the joint for three years in DC and then not the most pleasant place in the world to live, DC. And so I, I moved back to LA and then we built a station here called Indie 103, which was a kind of Rolling Stone voted us as the best station in America. And it was me and Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. Had his show Jones's Jukebox, which has become legendary. And lots of the guys from Guns N' Roses and all that were um, DJs on the station. So most of the people on Indie 103 were musicians who could play what they want. And that's the reason why it became the you know, best station in America, according to Rolling Stone magazine. Probably a difficult question, but you've listed a lot of artists, bands that you've worked with, everyone from No Doubt to, gosh, I mean, there's so many people you've worked with, but who would you say has been the most gratifying to work with? Well, I said starting from scratch with Lee Perry, you know, the early stuff I did with him, which is Lee Scratch Perry Presents Native at the Black Ark, which was just re-released. Lee Perry is just this, you know, very, very spiritual and completely out of his mind producer, but brilliant. And I remember Chris Blackwell told me that, you know, Bob Marley was not affected by anybody. You know, if Mick Jagger or Paul McCartney came up to Bob Marley, he was like, yeah, what's happening? But when Scratch came up, Bob was just like a kid. He was just scared of Scratch because he saw the genius of Scratch, how Scratch had helped him with his early music and all that. So I was so lucky to um, to be around, you know, the brilliance of Scratch and producing my first Thing. And then after that, you know, some of the people you meet in life are other people like me and you are like 50% dust and 50% spirit, you know. But two of the people who, who for me are like ethereal are Keith Richards and Willie Nelson. They're like about 80% spirit and 20% dust, you know. They're not like us. So Keith has this real magic vibe and spirit around him. And that's why he's created, you know, the biggest band of all time, Rolling Stones. And yeah, still writing great songs, still playing amazing stuff. And if you see them live, they're better than they were. 50 years ago you know it was so good and Keith is actually my neighbor in Jamaica and he said that it's the only place in the world that his heart beats at the right pace which is a big boost for Jamaica because he's been everywhere in the world you know but he still has a house in Otrius and he still spends time there and said it's, it's the most magical place so working with Keith on the Wingless Angels album which you can also check out in Wingless Angels it's on um on YouTube and everything and on iTunes and that record was so brilliant because not only was it Keith Richards, but it was Justin Hines, who was one of the early godfathers of ska and reggae music. And Bob Marley told Justin Hines that he was one of his biggest influences. So Justin is singing along with the Rastas from a little town where I'm from in Jamaica called Steertown. And then Keith playing rock guitar over it. So he just created this whole Nyabingi sound that the world had never heard before. And it was really, really magic. So that was, was great working on Keith with that. And then also with Willie, it was just a, another magic situation where I had met Don was, who was producer Stones and Dylan and Willie and everybody. And and Don just called me up and said, hey, I have a reggae project. Can you help me with it? And so we went into the studio and brought in Peter Tosh's band who were living in Los Angeles. And we just cut like two songs, you know. And then when we finished it, you know, Don was said to me, what am I going to do with this? You know, where do I even take two reggae songs by Willie Nelson? And I was like, well, um, yeah, my friend Chris Blackwell in Jamaica. So I sent Don and Willie Nelson to Jamaica and Chris took them around in the helicopter and all that. And then they signed the deal with Island Records. That was when Chris still had Island. And so we got the budget and came back in and we went in with the same band, Peter Touch's band, and we did a whole album, Willie's album, which eventually came out under the name Countryman. But what had happened with that was it, it, um, it wasn't released right away because Chris left Island Records and so they shelved it for a while. And then later on, another label came along and put it out. And we... Um, I went to Jamaica with Willie and we shot the video and all that. And it was, it was so great. But Willie is just one of these really special beings, you know, that just being around him is like an honor, you know. And when I was in the studio with him for the whole week recording, I, every time we took a break, I would be like, Willie, Willie, give me some stories, you know. So he was telling me that, you know, he said, you know, he said, you know, I had to sell my private plane. So I was like, Willie, did you sell your private plane when you were broke? Because at one time he was he had to declare bankruptcy because his accountant had not paid his tax, so he had to declare bankruptcy. So Willie said, "No, I didn't sell the plane when when I when I was bankrupt." He said, "When I fly on the plane, I smoke so much weed that the secondhand smoke gets into the pilot, and all the pilots test positive 
for THC. So all the pilots in America refused to fly Wheelie's plane, so he had to sell the plane. <laughs> now, how many people in the world have sold the plane because there's too much THC in the pilot's blood? And he can't even fly for like one hour without smoking. So it was just like so insane, man. So, so he's just the greatest guy, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, now, he's, now he's vaping, so he's not smoking anymore. I'm glad to hear that because that smoke, if you put too much into your lungs, especially at his age, it's really bad for him. But Wheelie's, I think, 85 or something like that and sharper than any of us. And when I was at XM, I helped him to get a, a radio station up there called Willie's Roadhouse, and it's um it, it, it's it's still on there, and you can listen to it on on Sirius XM. And every time I run into him, he's like, "Hey man, do you still speak to those people at Sirius? Are you in touch with you know John Brown or Peter Smith?" And I'm like, "Willie, I can't remember the name of anybody I met yesterday, and you're 85 and you smoke weed 24/7. You remember everybody's name? Maybe I should start smoking weed 24/7, you know, because it, it, I, I can't remember anybody's name, and I don't even smoke anymore, you know." So yeah, man, Willie's this absolute genius and, and 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 just so such a unique voice, such a unique style of guitar playing, and the most humble and perfect gentleman. I've never seen him be rude to anybody. I've never seen him have any kind of a star attitude or anything like that, you know? <laughs> He's really special, isn't he? Definitely, man. One of the all-time greats, you know? Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask about how you met Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, um, so he, I actually went to one of Jimmy's shows, and, and I had met his wife before. His wife used to live in, in L.A., and, but they had been divorced and so I was at Jimmy's show and I was saying, man, you know, I'd really like to meet him, but I don't have any way to meet him. And then I was, all of a sudden I saw Jimmy's wife walking through the crowd and I was like, what are you doing here? You got divorced from Jimmy. And she's like, no, no, we got married again. This is how crazy Jimmy is that he divorced and he married again. And her name is Janie. She's an amazing girl. And of course, Jimmy's an amazing guy. And so she said, come and meet him. So she took me backstage and I met him and I had this song that I'd written for him. And so I gave it to him and, and he said, okay, I'll check it out. And so... About a year later, I was in Jamaica with Chris Blackwell, and he said, oh, Jimmy Buffett is coming down. So I went, and when I met Jimmy, I said, I don't think you remember me, but I met you like a year ago with Janie. And, and he said, I remember you. You gave me that great song called Jamaica Time, but I lost the tape. Please give me another one. I want to record the song. So we, him and I became friends, and then we, we, we wrote um, Altered Boy together, which was, you know, he, he, I read that Jimmy used to be an altar boy when he was a kid, and now he's the exact opposite of that. So I said, well, Jimmy, I'm going to write a song called Altered Boy. So we did Altered Boy, and we put it together, and, and it's his far side. It's on his Far Side of the World album, and we're just such a great guy, and, and one of the all-time great performers, you know, because you have to understand, I mean, Jimmy's songs are not Beatles songs, you know what I mean? But yet still, he's worth $1 billion. You know? He's like as rich as Paul McCartney, but Paul McCartney wrote the greatest songs of all time. You know, there's no question. But Jimmy's songs are good, but they're not Beatles songs. But the reason, when you see somebody who has good songs, but they're so gigantic, it's because they're an amazing performer. And Jimmy's one of the great performers of all time. You know, he can walk into a stadium of 80,000 people and relate to everybody at the very back of the stadium, you know? And everybody feels like they're his friend and he's talking to them and he knows how to do that. Whereas a lot of people can't perform. You know, you might be a great, make great records, but when you go up in front of an audience, you don't know how to talk to them. You don't know how to win them over. So Jimmy Buffett is just one of the all-time great performers. Who is, he's not on the level of, but I, I still think the greatest performer of all time is Bruce Springsteen. I've seen Bruce so many times. And, um, you know, and of course, Bob Marley is up there and Bono and Mick Jagger and all that. But uh, I don't think anybody can top Springsteen, but Jimmy Buffett is way up there too, as one of the all-time great performers and really cool guy. And now, subsequent to that, he built, he has like five Margaritaville's in Jamaica, which do really well. So I was just down there hanging out with him and he came by the studio. That I don't help to put together a studio in Ocho Rios with Zach Starkey from The Who, with Ringo Starr's son, and he's Gene drummer from The Who, and also from, he played in Oasis. And um, so Jimmy came by the studio and we were, you know, talking about recording and stuff like that. But, I mean, another classic story is that they shot down Jimmy's plane in Jamaica. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it was so classic because I was supposed to be on the plane. I was actually at Goldeneye, which is where you two stay when they come down, which is Chris Blackwell's resort in Ocherius. Absolutely immaculate, amazing place. And it's where Ian Fleming wrote all of the James Bond books, and um, which became all the James Bond films. So I was there with Bono, and I told him I was doing the Willie Nelson album, and I was just coming back to LA to do record the Willie Nelson album and he was like I have a song that I want you to get Willie to sing on the album so I was like okay so then I came back to LA and I didn't want to come back because Chris Blackwell was here and he said 
Buffett is coming tomorrow with the Albatross, his plane that lands on the water, and we're going to fly around Jamaica in the plane. So I'm like, man, I have to go back to LA. I mean, I want to go back to LA to work with Willie, but I could be in Jamaica hanging with Bono and Blackwell and, and Buffett, you know, three Bs. And um, I was like, man, but anyway, anyway, I'm back in LA. I get a message, call Bono. So I call and says, so Bono, Bono said, listen, I just want you to remind me, make sure that you give the song to to Willie, you know, and I go, yeah, man, I'm going to give you a song to Willie. So I said, what's happening? And he goes, no, I can't talk any longer because I have to get on the plane. You know, Jimmy Buffett and I are flying ar- across Jamaica. So I'm like, oh, no, I'm stuck in LA and I could be on a goddamn Albatross flying across the, the Jamaica with, with Buffett and Bono. Good thing <laughs> I wasn't. So they take off. First of all, the plane takes Buffett and Chris Blackwell from Ocherius and drops them in Niguil, which is the far side of Jamaica. Comes back and picks up Bono and his kids and comes back and they land in the water, right? off the, the beach in Negril. The cops in Negril don't know anything about this plane coming to land. They weren't notified. So they think it's a marijuana plane. <laughs> so the plane lands. Bono gets off with his kids. The, the cops are on the shore. They take machine guns and fire 100 machine gun bullets over Bono's head right into the, into the plane. Right? Now, how insane could that be? If, first of all, if one bullet had hit Bono, we would just shut down Jamaica. And if the plane had blown up, if it had hit the engine, we would have just shut down Jamaica. But... Lucky enough, somebody blessed us and it didn't happen. The bullets went all through the plane. The pilot took off and um, flipped out when he saw the plane, the ho- holes in the plane when he stopped to, to refuel. And so it was, um, but of course, the genius at Buffett is instead of getting mad with Jamaican government and suing them, he now has the plane in um, Universal in Orlando as a museum with bullet holes in it. So he's making money off the plane. He made the government give him five margarita bills at the airport in Jamaica and things. So now he's like making money off of it. And he was like, you know, Buffett was like, hey man, I just forgive them because, you know, you know, now I can have a carte blanche in Jamaica. I can walk down the road smoking, whatever, and nobody can touch me, you know, because I'm now king of Jamaica because they owe me so much money for having ruined my plane. <laughs> and also, you know, he, he said that, uh, um, you know, he maybe used to do some you know, naughty stuff before he made it in music, and maybe this was his karma coming back to get him. You know what I mean? So, so it's, it's really funny. So, such, such a brilliant guy. And then Bono was, um, Bono just forgave to him. Bono said, listen, man, I come from Ireland. I get shot at every day. It's no big thing. So these two greats completely forgave Jamaica, forgave everything. And now, you know, Buffett wrote a song about it called Jamaica Mistaker, where he said, we're coming in and we didn't even have a spliff. And it goes, come back, come back to Jamaica. Don't you know we, we made a great mistake? We would be so sad if you told us goodbye and we promised not to shoot you out of the sky. So it's uh, so Buffett actually did the song, encouraged people to come to Jamaica, made money himself, everybody won, you know? And the other crazy part of the story was Buffett was on the beach with his camera shooting the plane landing and then he would show that footage at his concerts. You know, he has a big screen and he shows the footage at the concert. So he's shooting the thing, and, and the cops come up, put the gun to his head, and said, you're arrested, you're a marijuana dealer. And Buffett was like, I'm Jimmy Buffett, I'm like the biggest star in America. Go, we never heard of you, you're a marijuana dealer. So like the handcuffing <laughs> Buffett now, to take him to jail. So Bonner comes in with his kids, terrified, because he was almost just killed, and the cops are like, we're arresting you for a marijuana deal. Bonner goes, I'm you too, I'm like the biggest man in the world. Go, we never heard of you, we never heard of you. So they, they're just about to take Bonner and Buffett to jail. When up walks Chris Blackwell, who is a legend in Jamaica, and he walks and he goes, I'm Chris Blackwell. And the cops are like, oh my God, we're so sorry. And they forgave and, you know, and they did nobody sued and all that. And everybody had fun out of it and everybody made money and all that. So it was like so good that, that Buffett and Bonner were so forgiving and, and, and still come back to Jamaica and still love Jamaica and didn't hold any grudge. A lot of rock stars would have just said, never going back there and I'm going to sue them. And, you know what I mean? That kind of stuff. <laughs> it says a lot. You get shot at and you write a song. Telling people to go visit that country. <laughs> to go visit that country. <laughs> That's so amazing. Classic. Yeah, yeah. I have to give a shout out to my friend Jeff Pike. When the album Far Side of the World by Jimmy Buffett came out, and he listened to it, he said, uh, we were in the studio, and he said, Paul, have you heard this song, Altered Boy? I said, yeah, I heard it. And he said, how's this for a line? How dare he live out his dream? Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> was that your line or was that Jimmy's line? No, that, that was actually Jimmy's line. 
the thing is that he, you know, he 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 can't even believe how lucky he is, you know, to be worth one billion and, and and such a massive star and all that. And I always notice he's the only artist I've ever seen on stage say to the audience, "I want to thank you all for giving me this amazing life and coming to my show and buying all of my records and all that." And because you do that. I don't save any of this money, and I just spend it crazily. I just go into the to the surf shop, and I say, "Give me twenty of those long boys." I just because because I know you all spent the money on me frivolously. I'm just going to like spend the money frivolously. And he said, "I told my kids they're not going to have any money left for them because I'm just blowing the whole thing." <laughs> so his audience loved to hear that he's you know that that he's just enjoying it and just having fun, and they 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 want him to live that lifestyle, and they want him to fly around in the plane and all that. They don't want him to be a banker sitting down counting all his ten cents, and you know what I mean. And Jimmy's just crazy and wild, and just spends the money like crazy and that's so cool of him you know is it true that you helped create a track for paris hilton oh yeah that's another great story too because i had known paris just from going to all the clubs in la for many years and actually in the beginning i didn't even know that her last name was hilton i just knew it was paris and then eventually people said to me you know that's that's paris she's heir to the hilton fortune and i was like wow well she never told me that you know so i kind of had respect for her that she wasn't like flashing her name around you know and so that eventually when Warner Brothers signed her and they and they asked me to, to, to put together a reggae track for it. So I brought in Sly and Robbie. This story is so cool. So Sly and Robbie were recording in LA. So I called Paris and said, come over to the studio and meet them, right? And they were going to take it to Jamaica and we're going to record the thing in Jamaica. So Paris pulls up outside in her car. This was when she was a massive star. This is like, you know, more than 10 years ago. And she um the the, the following her is three SUVs. At this time, three guys make a living from just chasing Paris and taking her picture. So she has to kind of blank it out of her mind because if you, how many times are you going to curse the guys and tell them to get lost? She just acted as if they weren't there. So she parks her car and comes out. The three guys jump out of their car in the middle of the road, leave the car running because that's only a $500 ticket. And they run out and just taking pictures of her, taking pictures of her. When she comes up and I like, hug me, they're taking pictures, taking pictures. And I'm like, don't you have a life? Go and take somebody else's picture. You know what I mean? So eventually, so Paris comes in the studio now. When she arrives in the studio, Slay and Robbie have no idea who she is. I just told them that she's this girl who is making a record. And, uh, but when they came in, Robbie recognized her because she'd been on an ad called Carl's Jr., where she has on a swimsuit and she eats the hamburger and it falls on her on her breast. So so when she comes in, Robbie goes, Oh my god, it's a Cars Jr. girl. And he takes her around <laughs> and introduces it to everybody in the studio. This is the Cars Jr. girl. And Paris is looking at him like, I'm one of the biggest stars. Oh, right. No, what the hell is Cars Jr.? I mean, she can't believe that's the only thing that Robbie knew. So we sit down to have the meeting now. This is the part that I love. And so sit down. So we're about to say, so Paris, what songs do you want to do? What feel do you want to get? This is Sly and Robbie, the greatest. We're going to put together a great record for you. Paris had driven all the way across town. We sat down. So she says to us, guys, if I come to Jamaica, can you get me some good weed? And I said, <laughs> I said yes. And she goes, okay, all right, thanks. I have to go home now. And she's gone. So she came all the way only to find that out. You know what I mean? It's like, that's so classic. Just like, <laughs> how important is music? The most important thing is you have to be able to get some good weed, you know? So, and then, you know, what really hurts me is that a lot of people like slag her and say, oh, you know, she can't sing and all that. Well, if she can't sing and she gets a record deal and she gets one of us to send 10 million on, spend 10 million on her, that means she's a serious hustler. And what could be more attractive than somebody who is hardworking and hustling? And that's the thing with Paris is that she just like wakes up every morning and just goes to work and does her fashion stuff. And you know what I mean? She's a killer worker. All the other kids who are as rich as her growing up just, you know, smoke weed all day and don't do anything and are lazy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But in fact, Paris is such a hustler. I find that so attractive in her that she wants to work and she wants to do this thing. And that, that's what makes somebody great is when you want to work, especially when you don't have to. And you still kill yourself every day. She's such a hard worker, you know what I mean? And she got these record deals and did everything and, and, and put all the stuff together with not that much talent, you know, with a little bit of talent. But she's now no great singer. People who can sing much better than her have not hustled as hard as her to get what she achieved, you know what I mean? So, And the song Stars Are Blind, you know, it did well and, and, and it was really great, a great, great song. So, you know, respect to Paris for just, you know, going out there and doing it, you know, and most other people are just like lazy and especially, you know, kids of stars and kids of rich families around the world, but especially in LA, are just like take drugs all day and do nothing. You know, whereas Paris is just a serious, hardworking hustler. You've worked on so many projects. You've won Grammys. Just from a quality standpoint, what project would you use to represent what it is that you do? The one that you, you think is the best product? Um, well, 
artistically, I really love the Wingless Angels with Keith Richards because it's a serious piece of art, but it's not commercial at all. I would say the most commercial thing that was gratifying was the, the, the No Doubt, and especially the two songs, um, Hey Baby and Underneath It All, because you have to understand, No Doubt had sold 50 million albums with Tragic Kingdom, but when we did the Rocksteady album, they'd never won a Grammy. And then the first two songs I put together with them, with my brother Brian Jobson and Sly and Robbie, we won two Grammys and had two number one songs, you know. And even I was just in Jamaica at the Jamaica Music Awards and I ran into Bounty Killer. And I see Bounty about once or twice a year. Every time I see him, he comes and hugs me up and he goes, man, you're the only man ever to give me a Grammy, you know. The only Grammy he ever got was, was when he did Hey Baby with, uh, with No Doubt. And Lady Saw was the Jamaican rapper. She also got a Grammy for, for underneath it all. So not that many Jamaican songs have won Grammys. And so, I mean, albums, but not single songs, you know. So so um, so Bounty is so proud of that and all that. So, so to, to, to do that and get it. And then, you know, when we recorded in Jamaica, and it was the, the album before Rocksteady was it's called Return to Saturn. And it hadn't really done that well, you know. And so no doubt we're worried, oh, this might be our last album. You know, who knows if we're going to have a record deal after this and all that. So on the album, it had all of these great producers like um, Rick Okasek from The Cars and Prince and Nelly Hooper and all that. And and then the Jamaican part of the album was just supposed to be this little fun thing that, you know, no doubt is going to have some fun in Jamaican, right? And then, bam, instead of being just a little fun thing, the two songs that were the number one songs and Grammy songs were the two songs that we did, not the songs that Prince did or Rick Okasek or Nelly Hooper. It, it was those two Jamaican songs that ended up, you know, getting number one and doing that. So it was really gratifying to see two number one songs around the world and two Grammys and all that. Was really, and of course, they, that band was just so great, you know. Of course, Gwen Stefani is one of the great writers out there. I tell people that her song, Don't Speak, is like a Beatles song. It's one of the all-time great songs, you know. And um, and it's just her great songwriting and musicianship of those guys were just so, so brilliant. And everybody, in no doubt, was just so good and sad that they're not together anymore because they created a real magic and they were one of the bands that helped to bring rock reggae to America, you know, and, and to see them not really doing it anymore is really, really sad. But I've also, you know, been, been so lucky to you know, work with some of the other greats. I did a song with Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders, which was in a movie called Ace Ventura. And um, of course, you know, Toots, the all-time great Toots, I'm still doing a lot of projects with him. I just produced, helped to produce an album in Jamaica with, um, with Toots together doing a tribute to Mark Boland, which was T-Rex. So it is a big T-Rex tribute album coming out, which Toots has a song and Toots does Bang a Gong. And on it is also one song with Paul McCartney Ringo and Elton John, one song with Guns N' Roses, one song with Oasis Guys. So a lot of heavy people on the, that album and helped put that together with Toots. And then separate from that, uh, the studio we just built in Jamaica with Zach Starkey from The Who, the drummer, who is been quoted by Mick Fleetwood as the best drummer in the world. So we did this project down there and we used Sly and Robbie and the Neville Brothers and a whole lot of great artists to um to put together an album of all blues songs done in reggae. So it's all classical kind of lead belly songs and stuff done in reggae. And on it we have, of course, Sly and Robbie along with Toots, Michael Rose, Black Uhuru, Freddie McGregor, Andrew Tosh, Big Youth, a whole lot of great people are on, on that album. So you can look for that album coming out. It's called Red, Green, Gold, and Blues. Because, of course, you know, blues is a color, and red, green, and gold is the Jamaican colors for Rasta, which is actually the Ethiopian flag, but it's the Rasta colors. So that's it. And, of course, you know, Zach Starkey did an amazing job on it. And also producing the record, along with Zach, is, is a guy called Youth from England, who is one of the biggest producers in the world. He was originally in Killing Joke, so he did all great Killing Joke stuff. But he also produced three bands that you never would have heard of called U2, Pink Floyd, and Paul McCartney. <laughs> so you know, he's, he has a little bit of a resume there. So Youth came, and it was just so honored to work with him and with Zach and putting together this great reggae project. You know, So big respect to, to Zach and Youth. So other than this blues project, what is on the horizon for Wayne Jobson? But one of the things I've been doing is putting you know, songs in film. Like I had a few songs in that um, last Stallone film, which was called Reach Me. And I had a song in Michael Moore's documentary, Where to Invade Next. So just putting songs in a lot of different films and trying to get songs in TV shows and stuff like that. Because as you know, records don't really sell anymore. So the way to really do it is to get in with the different you know, um, TV shows and films and commercials and try and get songs in it like that. So just you know, working with a lot of... Um, a lot of people putting together you know songs for film and stuff like that and then i'm working on the next um, peter tosh film which is called legalize it i was just putting it together with kevin mcdonald who did the 
Mali documentary and he also won the Academy Award for The Last King of Scotland, the great movie about Idi Amin. And so just, you know, putting together that with Kevin, also have another documentary I'm working on called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but it's called Guess Who Came to Dinner. And it's the making of that seminal movie, most important movie in race relations, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was Sidney Poitier, when he, you know, when he got married to a white girl. And, and 50 years ago, that was like totally controversial because it was still illegal to get married, for white and black to get married in America in 18 states. So the Columbia Pictures had shut down the movie and it was a whole big controversy how it even got made. And after they shut down the movie because of the racism, eventually the movie went on to get 10 Academy Award nominations and, and really well, you know. So I'm um, just putting together the documentary on the making of, of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So doing a few documentaries, writing songs with a lot of different people, you know. So it's a little bit of film and still have my radio show, which is called Alternative, which is bands that have altered the native sound. And of course, that show consists of Sublime and um, Revolution and No Doubt and, of course, Bob Marley and Peter Tosh. And so, I mean, I basically consider myself a storyteller. So whether I'm telling the story on the radio along with playing other people's songs or whether I'm writing the song and, um, and telling the story there. But whatever happens, it's all just, you know, telling stories and, uh, and trying to teach people the little that I know and try to put some spirituality and positivity into the world. What is the best thing about being Wayne Jobson? Well, I've just been so, so um, lucky to have grown up in such an amazing place where I grew up in the hills of Jamaica by nine miles. It's just spectacularly beautiful and, um, and just so spiritual up there. So I have um, basically, in, and get to work with all these greats. So growing up around Island Records and Chris Blackwell and Dickie Jobs, my cousin, and going to the studio with Bob Marley and getting to jam with Bob and all that kind of thing. It is... I've been just blessed to be in this positive spiritual place and then, you know, to, to, to have Keith Richards up the road and be able to jam with him. And, you know, and I basically come from a place which is, you know, like where Keith said, his heart beats at the right place. And then I spend a lot of time now in Los Angeles, which is also a creative vortex with some of the greatest musicians in the world live here and, you know, film people and all that. So it's um, to be around the great musicians in Jamaica and then to be around the great musicians in, in LA, you know, I'm just re really blessed. And so... I'm just lucky to, to, to be able to do this and still do radio and still put together films. And, you know, so I'm just one of the true, truly blessed people. And I just have to give thanks every day. How important is it for an artist to tell the truth? That's one of the things I kind of learned from, from um, Peter Tosh, you know, was that if you listen to his early work, it was just all, you know, all about the truth and, and, and his message and everything. And that's why Peter would never compromise, you know, and that's the reason why he didn't really you know, become bigger than he was because he, he wouldn't compromise at all. And of course, you know, in the world and in business, the music is a business, you have to compromise. And like, if you know, good thing was just like, um, Bob Marley would listen to Chris Blackwell and Chris Blackwell had already had all this experience of breaking all these huge bands. And so when Chris said, Bob, you should do this, Chris would listen. I mean, Bob would listen to Chris, you know, and like the, the survival album, which is one of Bob's all time genius albums was originally called Black Survival. And Chris Blackwell said to Bob Marley, don't call it Black Survival because you're limiting it to just the black audience. If you call it Survival, it'll apply to all people, Jews and everybody who have been through so much. So Bob agreed with Chris and called it Survival. If it had been Peter Tosh, he would like, no way. You, you just don't want to call it Black because of whatever. So I'm going to call it Black Survival. And that's why Peter Tosh never really made it because he was difficult and wouldn't listen. You know what I mean? Whereas Bob would listen and realize Peter was just... 100% truth and he's just going to say it whatever and he would just curse off Mick Jagger or Keith Richards you know like when he, he captured Keith Richards house in Jamaica and he threatened to kill Mick Jagger and all that all this crazy stuff because he was just going to be as honest and truthful as possible that's the extreme you don't want to be that honest you know what I mean sometimes you have to compromise a little bit but when you see the um the, the great artists like the Bonos and uh, and people like that it's, it's because the truth in U2's music why, why U2 have remained so big and I just saw that show recently and it's the best show in the world right now is the U2 show I mean, as far as the screen and the sound and the lights and everything nobody can touch that U2 show it's absolutely brilliant and it's good to know that all started from Island Records and from from Jamaica you know but uh, another bonus story was that I was with him in DC when I was at XM and I was backstage with him in DC and he was actually hooking up and being really friendly to a guy called Jesse Helms which was a guy who was this kind of a, you know had been in the CIA and he was a really kind of a bad guy and you'd want to stop Martin Luther King's day you know and he had had CIA stuff done in Jamaica and all that and 
So I was kind of like shocked, and I was like, you know, like Bono, what are you doing? What are you hogging up this guy? Like he's, a, he's like, a, like an evil politician, you know what I mean? So I, I was actually so I saw him there. I couldn't say that to him in front of Jesse Helms. But then about a few months after that, I was in South of France, and Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics, who is this other genius producer that we work with a lot, Dave was getting married, and so Bono was at the wedding. So when I saw Bono, I went up to him and said, "Hey man, the last time I saw you, you were hugging up Jesse Helms." And he was kind of embarrassed and he was like, well, you know, when you need stuff, you just have to, sometimes you have to just, you know, not like sell out a little bit, but you have to do stuff to compromise. You know what I mean? Then right after that, they had the Grammys in New York and I went with No Doubt and No Doubt played at a tribute to, to Bono and they did a U2 song. And and the, the, the head of the, the guy who was the kind of MC for the Bono tribute was Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton was there and he was lucky we got to meet him and stuff. And, and Bill Clinton got on stage and said, single-handedly because of Bono, we forgave $400 million of foreign debt to the poor third world countries. And he said, me as a Democrat, I never could have done it because the Republicans would have blocked me. And he said, the Republicans never could have done it because my people would have blocked them. But Bono came in a united Democrats and the Republicans and got $400 million of third world debt saved, which so many kids are going to get to live and eat and go to school because of that $400 million. So the next time I saw Bono, I was just like, you know, bowed down before him. And I was like, whoever you want to hug up, you're free. Just hug them up. You know what I mean? Because that's the truth. You know that the truth is that if you need to hug up Jesse Helms to get this $400 million forgiven, then do it. You know? So of course, Bono had invited Jesse Helms backstage to the show with his grandkids and all that. And he knew that that was going to help him get a thing. So whatever the mission is, when you're on a mission of truth, like Bono, is then sometimes you have to compromise a little bit you know and that's how he gets things done but um but what peter touch was no compromise bob marley was a little compromise and of course you have to do a little bit but when it comes back to it you have to be telling the truth you know because this is not just pop music where you're singing but i love you and the sky is blue this is stuff to try and change the world people's minds well in closing i like to always leave it very open-ended to give you the microphone you can say whatever you like. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Well, one of my um, things I always say is that, you know, we're all here on Earth. We're on a mission. You know, we're here for a very short time and you have stuff to do. So every day is important. Make sure every day you're positive, you're doing something, you accomplish something that day, you learn something that day. If you go to bed at night, say to yourself, what? did I learn today? And if you can't think of anything, get up out of bed and go and get a book and read something. Expand your mind. Grow every day. And there's no room for laziness, you know? And if someone calls you a hustler, like I said with Paris Hilton, about Paris Hilton, say thanks. The worst insult that somebody can say to you is that you're lazy. Do not be lazy. You know, being a hustler and working every day and fighting and be on a mission and changing the world, that's what life is all about, you know? And my motto in life is get better, not bitter. So if somebody <laughs> rips you off or something, they rip you off. Yeah, well, learn from it. Don't do anything with them again, but just you need to forgive them and move on. You know what I mean? Because if you get bitter, then that's what drags people down. And you see so many, so much bitter people in the world. Just get better, not bitter. And I was one of the people who inspired me most in my life was Nelson Mandela. And I got to go to South Africa, who we went to Cape Town, and we put together a big concert in Cape Town with Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics and Bono and Jimmy Cliff and. Went there and we got to meet Mandela and have dinner at his house and all that. And he just totally inspired me because here was a man who had been in jail for 27 years. And the jailer who used to come and lock him in the cell every night for 27 years. Now he comes out of jail and now he's the president. If it was me, I would have said to that jailer, you're going to jail for 27 years. When Mandela came out, he said, I forgive you. I love you. You are now my bodyguard. So, so Mandela's bodyguard was his jailer. Now, how much more forgiving can you be than that? You know what I mean? And so even when they took me to introduce him to him and the jailer was standing up beside him like, you better not try anything with my boy because I'm his bodyguard and I'm going to, you know what I mean? I'm going to, to, to look after him. So that kind of forgiveness inspires you to say that, you know, the most important thing in the world is forgiveness. If you can forgive, if Mandela can forgive 27 years in jail, I would not forgive 27 minutes in jail, you know? And Mandela forgave that. So that's, that's what made him so great. And when he did the show, you know, the Cape Town Stadium and of course, the, um, you know, Bono and Queen and Peter Gabriel and Cat Stevens, all-time greats were on that show. When all these big stars came out, like Bono and everything, the crowd just cheered a little bit. When Mandela came out, the whole place went crazy. And you have to understand, this is like maybe 40,000 white kids because the, the ticket was expensive. You know, it was to raise money for, for the, um, his, his foundation, the Mandela Foundation. So there was not a lot of black people there. 
but the white kids, 40,000 white kids were screaming for Mandela because they loved him, the fact that he had forgiven their parents for all of the apartheid stuff and, and, and not put anybody in jail. There was no, no reconciliation trials, nothing like that. He just forgave them. And so they loved him so much that he could be that positive and forgiving. You know what I mean? And I remember I even met Bishop Tutu in Los Angeles and I said to him, you know, how could you forgive? I said, I could never forgive like that. And he said, listen, there's no option. You either have to kill them all or totally forgive them. You can't half forgive. So you just totally forgive. No reconciliation, nothing. You just forgive them completely. And because of that, you know, that's why Mandela is one of the greatest geniuses of all time. You know what I mean? And um, and even you can see it in that movie Invictus where he they didn't want him to have the white rugby team. And he said, no, they're South African. They're equal to me and you. And then he let them, the rugby team, go into the World Cup. And they won the World Cup. The karma of that was just to show Mandela's positivity is what helped the South African rugby team to win the World Cup. And because he fought against the whole country and said, no, I'm not going to hate them because they're white. I forgive them for what they did. And they are South African, just equal to me and you. So if you're looking for somebody to inspire you in life, you know, read Mandela's book and just look at his work. And, and he's so positive and forgiving. Wonderful. Wayne, thank you so much. These stories are just, they're incredible. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, like I said, I've been very blessed, you know, and all the you know, various people I've just got to work with. I did, did a record in Jamaica with Donovan, you know, hurdy-gurdy man, and he's just such an amazing songwriter and lyricist and all that. So we did some reggae stuff together, Donovan. So a lot, lot of great stuff still coming, you know. Well, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Yeah, I would just say just stay positive and, and you know, and remember that, that we're here for a short time. So it's every day, just work as hard as you can and be as positive as you can. And, and, and every day, try to learn something for yourself and to expand your mind. And every day, try and do just one thing to help somebody else, you know. And it's by helping somebody else. Like, Bob Marley has a great song, which actually is a Bonnie Whaler song. It's Whalers. And it's called Pass It On. And the lyric says, live for yourself, you will live in vain. Live for others, you will live again. In the kingdom of Jah, man shall reign. Pass it on. And that's one of my favorite Whaler songs. So whatever you're doing in life, just pass it on. Well, Wayne, thank you again. If you ever find yourself in Atlanta, come by for some hospitality. You'd always be welcome. Thanks a lot, man. And, and I love Atlanta. Actually, for one year, I went to Georgia Tech. So oh, I know yeah. Atlanta well, you know. Yeah, man. I went to Georgia Tech and studied, and then I, from there I went on a switch and did law. So I went to England and did law. But they, um, they, they, I, I know Atlanta well. Thanks a lot for having me, man. I'm honored and blessed. My pleasure. Until next time. Okay. Respect, man. Talk soon then. God bless. All the Guidance. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>